Hey everyone, welcome back to the Flywheel Podcast. I'm your host, DeFi Dave, and we're here with Capital K, and we just finished up the researchers episode. And uh, yeah. we were just saying, um, like one of my favorite parts about how we approach Flywheel is we don't care how big you are, we don't care how much clout you have, we just care that you know your shit and you have something interesting to say. And both of these people had a lot to say, and they're both very knowledgeable. Not just about fracks, but just DeFi in general and what's going on on chain. What do you think, Kit? Yeah, man. I I feel like I love it when we bring people who are not, you know, frac centric or on the frax core dev, where we bring kind of like frax community at large, and especially with these two guys being coming from their background of institutional research and bringing that caliber of you know. Um, analysis to the space is very critical and it's great to hear their takes on their methodology and the, kind of how they break things down. It was, it was a really good pod. Yeah. And I think what a lot of people see, whether it's on crypto Twitter or discord or other platforms is basically the retail arena of crypto. They don't really see, you know, they get that perspective of, you know, who's like hyping this thing up. What's that new shiny thing of the day. The whole institutional part of crypto, this happens in different areas of different channels and different arenas. And so it was good to kind of get a glimpse of what institutions are thinking and how they approach things and how our researchers go about, you know, analyzing different projects in the space. It was very insightful. Right. Right. And and, yeah. and Jack is on like, you know, at, at the tie. So that's a pretty damn big institutional research yeah. desk. And then and we have the counterbalance of like Harvey, who's, you know, a, a analyst and researcher across multiple DAOs as well. So we kind of got both yeah. perspectives. So we have really the docs and we have the Anon, but both yes. <laughs> super knowledgeable and really know their stuff. And so we're going to get this one going, guys. Don't forget to subscribe. You know, we're at 200 subscribers now. We're almost around there. Whoa. It's been fast. Like, it's pretty dope. Uh, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Flywheel Pod. You know, hit up our Telegram channel to get updates at Flywheel Pod, and we'll get this thing started. This week we have another special episode, and this time we have the researchers on from the Frax community that work at several different DAOs and you know research outlets. And you know, this is gonna be a fun one because these people. It's literally their job to dive into the Frax protocol. And so here we are. Here we get started. Uh, we have Jack from the Thai, who leads uh, the institutional research unit. And we have Mr. Harvey Milk, who uh, does some research for a few different DAOs. So welcome, guys. Thanks for coming on. And of course, we have Kit, my wonderful co-host. That always covers my back when I just can't think of anything. <laughs> and, <ask> the, <laughs> and and when when there needs to be like more like MBA related questions, financial questions, kid is always there. So, anyways, without further ado, let's get this started. Um, how are we doing, fellas? Doing well. Doing well. Excited to be on and uh, appreciate you guys uh, inviting me on. Sweet, sweet. What about you, Harvey? How you feeling? Feeling good. Little jacked up off some pre-workout so oh hell yeah much of that let's go that's exactly what we need in an interview just a little bit of pre-workout to get us going we good (laughs) (laughs) perfect you know um i i I love to hear more about the the researchers background and how they became researchers how about we start with you harvey 
Yeah, so I've I've been in crypto since 2017. Bought the absolute top. Um, used to dabble in a lot of different original crypto use cases. Um, so I got back into it 2019 pretty heavily. Uh, just been riding the DeFi waves. Um, I work at an institutional research desk right now. And before that, I was working for a centralized exchange on the research unit. And then on top of that, I'm involved with intern DAO and edge simps. So just always lurking on Twitter, checking out what's next. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, how, how about you, Jack? Yeah. So I actually come from traditional finance, uh, from a corporate perspective, but I actually started mining Bitcoin way back when in, in around like 2014, 2015, when I was in high school, uh, because my computer science teacher back then was like professing it as the future. And I didn't actually save any of it, unfortunately, but, uh, wrote it off for about another five years. And then my roommate at the time got me really into, uh, crypto. And then I started deep diving into it kind of DeFi summer as a lot of others did. And I was spending a lot of time writing, research content for myself, publishing on a Google Drive and just putting it on Twitter, um, like not even Substack. I didn't even know that's how people operated. <laughs> and so I uh, actually got connected to a friend at the company where I now work, the Thai, um, which is doing some really cool stuff. We're a software and data platform, uh, institutional audience, primarily over 100 different investors on it. And we also are working with like 20 large token issuers doing data validation, uh, growth marketing and uh, all kinds of really cool stuff on, on the data sourcing side. So um, part of the day-to-day, -day, we are have a large research team that produces content from thematic pieces all the way to protocol-level deep dives. And one of the first pieces I wrote way back when was on Frax because uh, I love the idea of um, under-collateralized but fully-backed stablecoins. And I think it's uh, a really good use case for a decentralized ecosystem. And uh, I'm very excited to kind of explore the logistics of how we make that happen. Yeah, I'm curious. So it sounds like you both uh, dived into DeFi summer when that was popping off almost two years ago now, which is uh, feels so weird to say. It feels like it was just yesterday. We were just all hopping on food farms. So I guess what were your guys' experiences during DeFi summer? And then, you know, there was that little wave where things died down and then it was algo stablecoin mania. And that's and Frax actually came from that first generation of Algo stablecoin. So what was your experiences during DeFi summer and how'd you end up at Frax? Uh, Harvey or Jack, one of you can go first. Yeah, I'm happy to, to, to go first this time. So uh, for me, it was, uh, I started off really dabbling, honestly, um, very lightly kind of trying to add, understand things from a, a fundamental perspective. And I didn't really get super into the weeds on tokenomics and modeling stuff out until Olympus actually. Um, okay. because, although that was like almost a full year later in the cycle, it was the tokenomic model that made me really go like, wait, this is so weird and I'm struggling to break it and I don't really <laughs> understand what's happening, but this is a perpetual money machine. Um, and after that, like started to understand how things worked more fundamentally and got into the weeds. And as you said, like Algo stablecoin season came around and um, a lot of people were diving into to Luna and hyping it up as I was originally, I will like fully admit. Um, and you'll actually see around the time when I wrote the Frax piece, I tweeted 
converting all of my Luna and UST into like CVX, FXS, and and Frax, um, because I have a lot of like I have a lot of concerns about about the structure of of UST and like um, you know not to dance on grids or anything, but I think that the need is still really there to create a model that is truly trustless, usable for DeFi, but um, is actually using technology to not just create something that is that exists in legacy financial markets on chain. Um, so, yeah. Nice, nice. So you went from Olympus. That's how you dived into DeFi. Yeah. And then you re- you saw all the different things that were happening, and that and basically Frax became like, oh, this is the closest thing that I would say is a sustainable model uh, in from my perspective. Yeah, it was more just I, I liked the idea and the ethos, right, of there were people that were creating automated stable coins on chain, but were doing so in a way that wasn't actually reflective of, of models that had been proven to work in the past, right? And I don't think, or I hope to think that crypto and DeFi especially has kind of gotten over itself a little bit in terms of like, oh, we are different fundamentally than traditional financial markets in some way that like our perpetual money machines will work while theirs didn't. Um, and so just like seeing seeing a group that was willing to kind of stick to fundamentals was, was really interesting to me. And I think um, a desire to like increase fundamentals even more is a lot about what I'll talk about later in this episode uh, in terms of where I think Frax can go to improve um, to the point where, you know, I'm not saying Frax is perfect, but in terms of achieving the goals that I think should be achieved by a stable coin in terms of like facilitating liquidity trading and all these other factors at their core, rather than just being like a savings token, uh, it does an excellent job. Sweet, sweet. What about you, Harvey? Uh, when, what were you aping into um, during DeFi summer if you were during, there during DeFi summer and how'd you end up at Frax? Yeah, so um, the entirety of DeFi summer, I was actually a bag holder of um, uh, a Qcoin shitcoin, but it, it did <laughs> exponentially well for no reason. Oh, hell so yeah. I, I got to watch a lot of DeFi summer um, I aped into a couple rugs. There was like always like yearn three stuff like that. <laughs> I would just I would chunk like freaking like twelve Ethereum at the time when I was nothing. I'm like, oh, it's gone. It's like it's okay. So it's I, okay. I a lot of pool twos and a lot of rugs. Um, whenever DeFi summer, the summer part started winding down. I bought Convex really early. I think I saw like small cap scientists tweet a thread about it. That was a kingmaker thread. Um, paper handed that pretty badly. Um, and then after that, I got back into DeFi, like probably day two of Olympus Dow, just like Jack. So I, I wrote Olympus Dow for a little while, um, swung around there. And then after like that huge May crash, I just like all in dome. And made it all back that summer because it Make actually. Make it all back in one trade. <laughs> um, <laughs> after that, I think I, I dabbled with Spell and uh, Magic Ooh. Internet Money. Um, rotated between that, Ohm, and Tokamak for a while. RIP Tokamak. And um, towards the end of that arc, I got heavy into Frax. Um, I passed up on Luna because I was really salty. I missed that initial monster run up. And I just told myself I would never touch it. And 
by pure luck, I missed all of that. So can't be too upset. But um, finding Frax was, I, I really like the, the thesis of becoming like the decentralized bank of crypto. And, you know, I think there's a lot to be said by having this minimally governed model for Frax. And I think that's the most important part that helps it scale. Because if you've ever held any sort of leadership position in an organization, the more people you have giving opinions, the harder it is to actually get something done. And I think we can see that a lot in a different, like a couple different governance protocols. When you think of like MakerDAO and you just see how things are going down there, um, we're kind of thriving in the fact that we just have minimal, I guess, minimal control over the core features of the product. Yeah. Personally, that's something I've been thinking about more is how much or how little to govern. I think the way to basically build it in the future is you have your core parts of the protocol that are set in stone and that are immutable, kind of like, I guess like Bitcoin's ethos of like 21 million, you know, nothing more like certain, whether you agree with it or not, those things are set in stone. And I think that's important to have those. Okay. This is not a debate. But obviously over time, there's going to be like something as like the protocol evolves, there's going to be some things that come up. It's like, okay, like, should we do something this or that? It kind of reminds me of the constitutional argument is like, you have the conservatives. It's like, oh, like when they wrote, when they wrote the constitution declaration of independence, should we view it from, oh, from the perspective of how the founding fathers viewed it? Or you kind of have the more liberal interpretation of like, oh, the constitution's a living document. We have to interpret it on how we would view it in our time. And I kind of view the same thing happening with, all different time, types of DAOs and protocols. Um, I guess, do you guys view it in that way too or no? I've actually written about this. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, cool. I had a, a piece called uh, Is Code Law, right? And I actually make a very similar argument to you where I think that fundamentally, right, like if you look at the definitional aim of law, it's to protect people's like uh, right to life, liberty, and property. In essence, like that is the goal of law. And similarly, like if you were to, to define like the goals of law for blockchain and for cryptocurrency, right, it, it is similar, right? Like it's the right to custody, own and use your own funds and have access to them at any time. Right. But that doesn't give anyone else the right to custody them at any time. And similarly, like I think that if there is faults in infrastructure that are able to be exploited, through vulnerabilities, that isn't an intentional part of the design, but rather a part of the design that needs to be fixed, right? And in the same way that like, we had amendments to the Constitution that are clearly necessary, looking at the historical journey of our country, um, you'll need to have updates to code bases in such ways that um, as the, the core narrative of the company changes, um, and as time changes, you need to, to evolve, right? And we've even seen this in terms of look at a lot of the tokens that launched in like 2017 at the start of DeFi. Um, and there's a couple of them that have iterated very successfully and are still relevant today, but a lot of them kind of just sat on their existing code bases and failed to iterate as the, the economy grew and now are not even really relevant aside from lingering bag holders, right? And so I think that really stresses the importance where if, if, you, if we don't evolve in the next bull cycle, there's just going to be a, a ton of new startup tokens that come 
And those are the names that everyone's trading and all of this iteration is going to be forgotten. I'm curious to hear what, what, what Harvey has to think coming from a, um, you know, ohm holder made it back in one trade. with. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think Greg said it beautifully. Like, you, you have some DeFi tokens where you know it's a clear Ponzi, you know it's a clear rotation play, and that's it. You get in and get out of those. But then you see something like Frax where they're really here for the long term. Like, he's here for a trillion-dollar stablecoin. Um, so there's, like, actual comfort in, like, buying Frax shares and just, like, holding it versus the others. Yeah, I, I agree with Harvey. That's that's kind of my thesis to it too, because all the new names are going to pick up new traction in the new cycle. It, that's always the case. Except yeah. Frax is actually targeting a large enough market where I think it has stay it has staying power. Because in the new cycle, that new project is not gonna have the traction that Frax has been building all these, you know, almost a year and a half now, almost two years. So you know, that's, yeah. that's why I'm kind of bullish on it. There's going to be a bunch of shiny new objects like always. But in the end, it's the things that are Lindy and that kind of cement their feet into the ground more and more. That's ultimately going to last. Yeah. Um, I, actually, I, I do yeah. want to add one, one more thing, Dave, real quick. Yeah. I, Frax has like this um, decentralized metric, right? They want to make sure the collateral underlying all the Frax is decentralized up to a certain point. And I feel like that is a core value and a tenant that no matter what changes with the code or what new product suite is released, like that core tenant will forever stay the same. And I think that is important. Like that cannot be lost or voted out by, you know, token holders. I think that needs to be a pillar. Oh, yeah. A lot of the decentralization ratio is a factor of the collateralization ratio, the two, right? In that, like... It's going to also be the case such that I think collateralization ratio is naturally going to be higher in bear markets where people want to have like more secured capital backing their stable coins. And so like if it can position itself in such a way that uh, collateralization ratio and decentralization is an acceptable stable place in a bear market, that means next bull market when collateralization shifts down and people are more risk on again decentralization is only going to increase, right? And so if you can keep like creating these stepping patterns during bull and bear markets and gradually increase it, that's like a sign of a successful protocol too. And I'm sure by next cycle, there'll be different types of collateral that will make Frax even more decentralized. Like Sam has talked about and has done interviews about having L1s and the L1 native token as the backing collateral of the canonical Frax on each chain, which I think is really novel and really important because it actually gives each chain a stake in the success of Frax and actually bring kind of brings its own uh, buy pressure on that token. It's like, hey, if there's more Frax on our chain, then that actually results in more of our native L1 token being used as collateral by Frax. So it's a positive, you see this positive effect from that. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, what's interesting is like, yeah, like the the decentralization ratio right now is like maybe like 21% and people will scream, oh, it's just wrapped USDC. But the thing is like the moment that more decentralized solutions exist for Frax to add to its collateral ratio, it's it's always going to be first in line to add those two. And then you'll have like you have, I think it's like BadgerDAO, Citadel, they're trying to bring like Bitcoin to DeFi. Um, I haven't looked too much into it, but like 
you have all these different protocols that are looking to bring other high quality collateral assets into the game. And I think that Frax is primely positioned to capitalize on that and increase the decentralization ratio as it goes on. Agreed, agreed. Um, so I, I, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here and ask you guys about your research methodology. Like, how do you, you know, start a, a research process? Or rather, tell me your story of how you started researching into Frax. Um, why don't we start with you, Harvey? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Um, I like to do a lot of on-chain snooping. So, you know, if I if I see like a couple like based accounts start tweeting about a project, I'll uh, I'll check the chain, see what's going on. I think I saw like Sisyphus bought a ton of frac shares earlier in the cycle, so I was I was interested, and then I talked to a couple funds actually after that and found out they were super bullish frags. So then from there, I kind of dove in. The The documentation is pretty rough to get through on your first look. <laughs> you really got to go through it for like an entire month and just keep going through it until you know it like the back of your hand. And uh, from there, I just saw like, I don't know, I felt like it was undervalued at the time. And I saw, you know, Sam, how active he was and proactive he was on integrating as many chains as he can or as he could and that was a that was a huge factor for me just seeing someone staying completely in sync with the narrative at all times and that plus i was never really worried about a frax dpeg i trusted the docs and um from there i just aped in and read it for a while and i i switched back and forth Cool. Okay. So, so, so let me summarize that. First, you snoop on the chain, then you back channel with funds, then you um, look at the ethos of the founder, being Sam being interconnected with everything, and and then you go double down hard on it after you read through the docs. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Okay. I, I like the very structural process. How how about you, Jack? Yeah, my journey to Frax was kind of funny as well in that uh, I had been in kind of cycling through a number of the Algo stables and Frax was actually one of the last ones I arrived at. And uh, I had probably been in my job at the time for a few months and I'd already heard of Frax at this point, understood what it was generally, but hadn't really done a deep dive into it. Um, and then kind of under, read through the docs and was really really liked two things. First was the fact that collateralization ratio was flexible. Um, thought that was a really cool addition. And then second of all, I liked that it had a mint and burn mechanism, but one that like Luna, but one that operated in like a more intuitive way and wasn't just like a hundred percent collateralized by the government token. I was like, Oh, nice. Um, and then I, at the same time, like I'm, this is going to be very foreign to, I think, almost everyone who watches this, given the crypto spaces demographics. But I'm a, a, a shit trader and be like not a trader uh, at all, really. Um, oh, I am, too. Don't worry. Yeah. So I, I come from the world of traditional finance. Right. And when I was pitching back then and when I the way I think now is still very focused on fundamentals. And so um, with the help of like someone on my team, we were digging into some of the data and we whipped up a dude and dashboard that was looking at cumulative fraxments over time 
um, over uh, FXS price, right, to get a sense of like where the deviation was on a normalized basis and saw that it was like at all time highs. And then we're also like comparing it to part of this is like my advantage is we have a lot of in-house data, but was also comparing it to like daily sentiment and mentions and stuff like that of Frax over time. And my hypothesis was basically that like Frax mints had been going up, but sentiment was still was down over time. So people were just like selling on the back of sentiment and no fundamental changes while fundamentals were actually still st strong and went long a shit ton of Frax and am still long a decent amount of Frax. If we're being honest, not financial advice to your own research. This is not a, uh, anything to do with my employer. Um, uh, but yeah, um, I think it's a, I think I still like it for a lot of the same reasons. Um, and so it, a big part of my process to this day, like if I was going to condense it more formally is I'm just like a huge docs guy and I don't really believe any numbers that I see until I can find them myself. Right. And Dave kind of knows from talking to me that I'm like super fucking annoying. I'll be like, I need all of the contracts for, for all of the revenue and costs for, for Frax. And like, I want to see exactly how much each AMO makes net of gas and like how we can use that as a factor in collateralization ratio. Right. And be like super neurotic about being able to place every line item. Cause I think that in crypto, especially there's a lot of terminology about like revenue and profit and all this kind of stuff that's just thrown out there very casually without like actually understanding what costs are like a lot of protocols are talking about making profit of two million dollars while paying millions like tens of millions of dollars in token dilution right and there's like this still weird mental gymnastics that's going on that i think needs to be normalized and part of the way that people are going to do that is by just like throwing shit out there, seeing what sticks and like hoping that some of these things get agreed upon as like core fundamental tenants. Yep. I, I agree with you, man. I, I am with you when it comes to the docs and just being neurotic about the numbers. And, you know, as, as Dave, that's kind of how, you know, we, we, we kicked this <laughs> off was I showed him my Excel model of how I track the dollar coming out of the curve AMO. And I basically hounded Seba continuously on where he, <laughs> he put each of these numbers. So I, I feel you on that. And I, I think a large part of it, though, is because Frax is such a complicated money machine, right? And the docs like, you know, Harvey and both you alluded to are not the friendliest things to the beginner. And, and are even it. still really general on top of that, right? Like you go to the AMO section and it's like, you can conduct agnostic open market operations as long as they don't mint Frax. And you're like... <laughs> All right, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> you, know, it's it's, you know, it's funny. You guys are super neurotic with numbers and like super research guys. And I think that's what balances out me well because I just I, – I talk to Sam and I talk with the team and I've known them just for so long. And I, I know Sam's vision. And it, like Harvey said earlier, like reading the docs a few times, for me, it takes – whether it's like listening to like a few interviews of Sam a few times or just like talking through things with Sam a few times. Like I trust Sam enough that I – just know where he's going with it. But it's also, I already, so like, that's why I'm just the way I am with things. But seeing you guys with, with the numbers, that's so important to hand those down because people don't have like that, like in that kind of access. And so like having numbers like tells the story, having numbers is what gives like evidence. And even like sometimes like, what if they're wrong? What if like the frax team is wrong and the numbers can be there to correct them. And if you have an argument to back it up, then like frax can change course. So it's like, 
very you guys like play a very important essential role in the whole Frax ecosystem in making sure the ship is on track. Yeah, I'm That's not exactly trying to pull right. these numbers to uh, to short the hell out of Frax if it turns out the collateralization ratio is like <laughs> perhaps running at a slight loss. I'm trying to find the numbers so we can then like go and be think about okay if the numbers aren't doing what what we say they should be why is that happening and how do we fix it yeah i said i think i said this in a past interview but one of my favorite quotes from an old friend of mine was uh people lie numbers don't straight up people lie numbers right. don't. right and i mean and that's you and i were both way. humanities majors by the way yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh that's crazy now nah, i yeah. you know i have an econ background and you know i also have my, my mba specializing in finance so that was like definitely my thing um i got a ba I, I actually, being a word cell so <laughs> you know like um i actually wanted to ask as harvey like when you were um researching into fracks like what was the most challenging thing for you to kind of grok or or kind of understand very first and what can Frax do better? Um, so I think trying to just understand what's deprecated and what's not deprecated um, is a pretty difficult part of looking at the Frax stocks. Like you can see like the, the buyback and burn, like apparently that was deprecated. I had no idea until like three months after I bought, I was like, oh, they're not burning it anymore. Um, and then, like, I think they um, they deprecated, like, the re-collateralized function or something recently. Um, so I think that was difficult, one, to understand the concepts of what the hell is going on. And then, two, understanding what's actually up to date and what's not. Um, but I think there's, like, I don't really know if there's an easier way to explain a lot of it. Like, some people will write threads, <laughs> and those are pretty good. But then it, it kind of reminds me, like, doesn't Curve have, like, an additional documentation website that was done by the community, yeah. and it tries yeah. to break everything down? Like, I think that would be huge. It's just who actually has the time to make that. No, that is being worked on right now. Kind of a, explain us. it like, yeah, it's us. It's an explain it like I'm five feet, like, unit being formed that's trying to break things down in simpler terms. But you need such, like, a breadth of knowledge and so much context to understand Frax, not even just about stable coins, not even just about crypto, but just how money works in general. Because most people don't realize how money works, what are different kinds of money, this and that. And so it just takes a lot of background before you can like jump into Frax. And that's that's why like our part of crypto is so kind of esoteric in a sense. Agreed. And, and that's because it's so complex and complicated. I think the next batch of holders and buyers of FXS are going to be much more sophisticated. And especially with, you know, our institutional content that we're putting out there, like that just kind of adds to, to that as well. So, you know, obviously we're basically smashing on Frax's docs. And I guess I want to ask you, Jack, like, what would you say that Frax could do to improve that? Yeah, I definitely agree that getting rid of or at least like marking clearly sections that are no longer relevant is pretty important, um, especially as people kind of only have one legitimate source of company documentation. And if that's not up to date, like what is it's not really realistic to expect an institutional audience to like go into a telegram group and like try to have their questions answered amidst a sea of like actual filth that 
like that's just not a sustainable business model, right? So like having good documentation that's up to date is really important. And I think the other thing for me would be um, getting a better sense of the vision of the project in terms of uh, collateralization down the line, and right? And in terms of thinking about like, right now there's some element of trust that is still a part of backing. Um, and if that is going to be a long-term part of backing, like how do you limit the potential control that that can have over your system? And then is it worth removing? And then if it remove, if you are removing it, how do you then think about like replacing that collateralization fraction such that it is still a relative, a, a good relative opportunity to mint frax, right? right. So like, yeah, by trust, do you mean USDC? No, by trust, I literally mean, right, like, let's say that the collateralization ratio is 90%. That means that it's 90% collateralized by actual assets, right, like including USDC. And it's 10% collateralized by FXS, right? And FXS has some underlying value. And like, theoretically, I'm going to assume at a base level, like a risk-free value for FXS, uh, the senior is its seniorage, right? So what is the actual yield that's being generated by Frax the protocol on its balance sheet? And then if that number is less than 100 minus the collateralization ratio, then the rest of that difference is trust. Does that make sense? And so kind of trying to boil down exactly what that trust number is right now, what it has it been historically, and what do we want to limit it to? Hmm. Wow, that is a very articulate way of looking at it. I love that. Um, it's like it's a trust score. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's and then it's um it's implicit across the board when you look at you know Frax is oh it's ten percent algorithmic that means we have a ten percent trust in Frax but that's not true because yes yeah. a part of that ten percent is actually from true revenue cash flow right like like straight from you know um the bottom line but then there is a percent. Or maybe there isn't, but whatever it is, that differential is um, what we need to figure out. I love that, Jack. Exactly Super right. Cool. Yeah. So like that's part of my 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 new motto oh. that I want to be for Frax, which is under collateralized by full but fully backed. And to make that claim, we have to prove that claim and then show that we are actually like substantiating it by tying CR to like the factor, which is revenue earned on balance sheet. Oh, so you're trying to figure out like what part of that 10% that's, uh, you know, algorithmic, quote unquote, yeah. that's actually has yeah. cash revenue and that actually yeah. is backed, under collateralized, but fully backed. I love that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now you understand why I've been saying that to you in Telegram nonstop for the past two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes a video interview to get this through my head. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, speaking of all this, I, I want to hear what your thoughts are about what success looks like for Frax. Um, let's do a short term and then a near term. Um, let's hear from Harvey for the short term. Short term, I think the biggest thing is maintaining PEG, which Frax is doing totally fine. Like not even a concern there. Like even on Aave, there was like a couple gigantic liquidations and like Frax PEG didn't even break at all. Um, and then another short term, Success for me would be witnessing actual volume on the Frax token itself. Like that's one of the most common FUDs is like, okay, they have this, but they own all the Frax and like no one's using it. 
And um, so short term, I think like with the curved base pool and um, Fraxland, I'm really hoping to see people start to transact in Frax a lot more. You can use Frax as collateral on perp, actually. I just, they actually announced that a few weeks ago, but like we definitely need more use cases than that. Yeah. Jack, how about you? Long term. Yeah. No, I mean, I hate to, <laughs> to dunk on Harvey, but I totally don't think that maintaining PEG should be counted as a goal for a stable coin. I think that's just like almost just it? implicit. Yeah. Like if you're not <laughs> doing that, you're just not even a stable coin, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But so I think like more seriously, long term, the number one goal that I have for Frax, and it isn't even just Frax specific, I think that this is my number one goal for the majority of projects and for the industry in general, is to just make data more available and more user friendly, right? And to some degree, that's feasible through Dune. Um, but asking the community to source everything and keep it updated isn't like super realistic in real time. Uh, and especially over the long term, it, over the ups and downs of projects, like maintainers are going to change and like it is open source, but it's just tough. Right. And so I think that having um, people internally that actually understand the the inner workings of the project and are 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 working to to create like useful fundamental models that are informing the operations is going to be really important. Right. So. Um, creating clarity and dashboards around a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today, I think is my number one goal for like the long term. Because if you're talking about institutional buy-in, like they're always going to pick a token that they can get data on and understand fully versus one that they don't, right? It just like takes it out of their opportunity set entirely. Yeah, I definitely yeah. agree. I, I think one thing that would be really cool is if someone could just make like a, a fee or revenue landing page because um, we can click on Frax Finance and we can look at the AMOs and we can see what's in there. But I mean, something that just shows like daily revenue today, like, and it came from these AMOs, et cetera, just something really baseline to showcase what the collateral's doing and actively earning besides just where it is would be really cool. Yeah. And I think, um, I guess to answer your question, Kit, I guess I have a different perspective because I'm not a researcher. I'm just a fraximalist, a humble fraximalist. But I think, you know, the long-term vision of Frax is similar to a lot of other projects, both decentralized and centralized. I'm not sure if anyone has heard uh, CZ's recent interview on Bankless, but he actually talks about within five to 10 years, he would like to see the majority of Binance off-chain and actually like not holding users like deposits or anything. He basically wants like Binance, like Binance Smart Chain, BNB, BNB Chain, whatever you call it, to be the main venue for Binance. Um, and so I think Frax's vision is actually quite similar to that, but they're coming at it from a different angle. Um, Binance started centralized while Frax started completely 100% on chain, but they're definitely converging to the same result. And with Frax, they're trying to basically be, become, I, I see them becoming like their own chain and their own roll up. And with all these different primitives that they're building, whether it be FraxSwap or FraxLand and whatever else, maybe they add some like more sophisticated trading uh, options in the future. It will just all be on its own chain, like a roll up. And I can see it being, you know, working in that regard in like five, 10 years, which would be pretty dope. And then FXS holders just, 
you know, reap all the fees and rewards of that chain and roll up or whatever. <laughs> yep, agreed. Um, <laughs> and I, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, both the, the researchers, how important is it to stay updated with governance? And um, have you guys seen any good dashboard or tools to help you stay updated with governance? I'm the wrong person to ask about that. I'm so bad about staying updated with governance on DAOs. I think oh. it's so hard to, to like uh, care about everything. I think if there's like a few specific tokens that I'm looking at, it's, it's, it's good to stay on top of those. But um, otherwise, generally speaking, I think the vast majority of time spent on governance is just like going to your local like HOA meeting and listening to people argue. And like, <laughs> there is, there is some times where like there are really important decisions being made. Um, and so like, I generally find that if I am somewhat active in like the primary discord or telegram channel or whatever, then whenever there is a meaningful vote or proposal that I should be aware of, it normally gets talked about. And so like even just doing that is a, a sufficient way to stay on top of important stuff. IMO. But uh, Harvey may have a very different opinion as someone more DAO focused. Yeah, so this is a unique question. Um, you see this problem a lot across a ton of protocols. Um, like me personally, to keep up with governance, I pick like my two or three favorite projects and I check those forums weekly, if not daily. And because uh, there's there's so much alpha to be had. If you can see a governance proposal like 15 minutes after it's posted, it's like, oh shit, I should probably buy. <laughs> um, but I think it's interesting because like there are a couple research desks that are starting to offer like governance products. Like I know Masari, for example, they have like this huge like governance tracker. Oh. They have this huge governance tracker that like it, it aggregates like every protocol they cover, it aggregates all the proposals. But I think that is too messy. So like if you're a subscriber, you can see that, but then like you'll see some really dumbass proposals getting posted or comments. Um, and then I also have a subscription to Blockworks Research, which is relatively new, but they also have their own governance feed that they're working on. And I think what's kind of cool there is that the analysts will skim through the proposals and they physically like they'll flag what's actually important. So it brings it to the top. And for an institutional investor, like I think it's worthwhile to find a research desk you like and see if they offer that feature and then probably subscribe to that. But for your everyday crypto Twitter person, you just got to be lurking. Yeah. There's, there's no way around it. Lurking and finding those threads. Honestly, like how I keep up with Frax and really just like the whole confederation of Frax, Convex and Curve is the threadors. The threadors of Haim and Barry, yeah. like they, they keep me up to date um, when I like, when, when I need it. And also just like for me, and I think for most, like I can only focus on one thing at a time. If I want to do something right, I'll just like pick one thing. And just like every like once in a while, I'm not once in a while, but like, like once a week, I'll take like an actual, or a few times a week, I'll take a deep dive in the Frax form and just like, okay, like what's being discussed and like, what are the things that are like being missed? Cause you're not going to see everything on the thread, but you're going to see everything on the forum. And I think Frax in general has pretty high quality discussion on the forum overall. 
Um, but yeah, I think it just comes down to like how much humans can pay attention. Like people like love to romanticize, oh, DAOs, like this and that. And it's just like reinventing the wheel. Like, is this going to be great? We're all going to hold hands, this and that. But at the end of the day, like work still needs to be done and people have their lives to live and they, they might get excited at first and be really active at the beginning, but you know, people's attentions, they fall off super quick. So it's all about, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I always, um, someone said this to me and, and it got a chuckle out of me. Was, they said, everybody wants to be on the multi-sig, but no one ever wants to sign. You know? <laughs> no one's there to <laughs> sign when you need yeah. it. Exactly. So, I mean, and the reason why I brought this up was because I am familiar with Mazari's tool and I, I didn't know Blockwork had one, but I feel the retail, right? The people, the community holder of Frax at large should have access to these tools. And it led me to think about like, should the protocol team, core team, have like a governance person who does this TLDR service as part of like a core team? Yeah, you know, this is like a equivalent of a government government liaison in, in like simple state governments that are national governments like you can't, you know, take if you're if you, you know, if you're a senator in Congress, you can't, you know, it's not humanly possible to take in all the information and all the different bills that are in Congress. You're going to need summaries and you have basically mm -hmm. different committee liaisons do that and government liaisons. And you're saying like the same thing should be there for protocols. Yes. I think it's even simpler than that. I think you're exactly right, but it's literally, this is a job that exists in, in every other company that isn't in decentralized finance. It's called investor <laughs> relations, right? I yeah, are, been like, you nailed it. Yeah, <laughs> I've been like a big advocate for this, but like every single, I know it's super annoying, but like, even at the largest scale, right? Layer one blockchains with like huge foundations and stuff. Half the time there are like th between one and four people at the company who actually know what's going on enough to like talk to an institutional investor and give them the color that they need, right? Like I think every single, whether DAO or token over a certain size should be hiring IR and literally have this person just like live with your founding team for like three months effectively learn everything there is to learn and then just be like your official forward facing person. Right. And yeah. can process all this kind of information. And I just don't understand why that isn't a more popular role yet. I feel like it's the name to be honest. I feel like you need oh. Yeah. I think instead of investor relations, it's protocol relations. Boom. That's it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. If that's all it was, man, I can't even with this community anymore. <laughs> I can't even. I, I mean, can't even. Yeah. I don't think people have thought about it, to be honest. Like, I don't think it's been a concern. I think people have just been focusing on other, other shiny objects during the bull market. But now it's in the bear, you know, you're going to have to focus on the fundamental things that matter, which includes protocol relations. Yeah. And that's protocol something that relations. we're really focused on at the tie, right? Um, I think I've talked with you about this, Dave, but yeah, uh, something that we're really focused on rolling out right over the the next few months of the year for protocols and tokens is like how do you actually connect to institutional capital what metrics do they care about how do you get consolidated time with them so that you're not just like booking random meetings and then how do you actually get like access to traditional institutions that may not be deployed into crypto yet and don't even know who to meet but are considering entering the space and want to start chatting with people right because um, that's also a really important market to address. So I think that that 
that question is something that we're seeing a lot of people going to start coming out with solutions for in the near future. Do you think um, protocol relations as a service could be like a DeFi wide uh, service offering? Like a, a team can literally just run a grant proposal for, let's say, three to four DeFi protocols to be like, hey, we will be your PR, right? We will do this for you. And then I think do I think we will see it here? Yeah. Do I think we will see it? Absolutely. Do I think it's going to be successful long term? Absolutely not. Um, Because and here I'll I'll explain to you why. Right. Um, I think that some degree of that. Right. Like an off the shelf component for small to mid sized protocols. Absolutely. Right. Um, Automating that sort of stuff is fine. And until you're at a certain size, getting into like the super nuanced data isn't important. And you can build like simple models that will fit like any decks or any trading or like any whatever, any lending protocol or anyone, any stablecoin issue. Right. And and have like these core things. But there's two main caveats. Right. Like generally protocols of significant size are doing something unique that's really tough to put into an off the shelf model. Like think about AMOs. Right. Like if we went to a certain team and they're like, yeah, in three weeks, I'll have you ready to like have all of the data on AMOs for investors, you would be pretty sussed out, right? And similarly, like if you are going to be on as on top of all this stuff as we're saying, we just described the fact that we can only look at one to two of these each, right? Mm-hmm. And we're, we're now talking about someone doing this and like thinking about doing it full time, right? Like if you're gonna actually be of a sufficient caliber and quality to deal with the kind of questions that institutions are gonna ask, like you have to live and breathe this stuff, right? Like there's a reason why only four people in each company can answer these questions, I think. Um, and it's because like they have, you have to know the ins and outs and you're not going to be able to get there committing to it part-time in my opinion. Yeah. You just need a gigantic team of analysts who actually understand things. And that's, that's pretty pricey. I would say, but it's pretty uh, rare to find, to be honest. Yeah. And if you have an entire team of analysts, it's super that actually understand things. It's incredibly low ROI to be publishing free governance information, right? Yeah. That yeah. like someone could source online for free. Like that's not a competitive, competitive moat. It's completely commoditized. It's a low multiple business, right? Like if you're actually building out a team and looking to create a business, it's not what you're going to be doing with your time either. I guess what I'm wondering, because you guys are both deep in the weeds of institutional research. What is the state of crypto institutional research right now? And where do you see it going? Um, I can go. Yeah. So I think, I think what's interesting is, I mean, you have institutions are more willing to go into seed rounds than buy tokens that are liquid on the market. And I think that's something that's really hurt the crypto space in the past year. You know, they're not buying our tokens. They're buying private tokens to dump for a 10, 20x later. Um, And then I think you have these different firms like Galaxy Digital, which will handle like OTC trading, and they'll provide like complementary research to their clients to purchase stuff. But the issue is that Galaxy Digital and these other firms, they're not up to date with what's actually like quality, what's new, what's fresh and what's safe. You know, they'll they'll take care of OTC trades into like Bitcoin, Ethereum, DOT, like some of your major ones. But having a DeFi focused 
institutional OTC desk is something that would really do well, I think, for like the next phase of the market. It's just the issue is trying to, I guess, like, I completely lost my point. <laughs> is there, there are a few OTC, OTC desks too for DeFi though, like Wintermute. Um, I think Genesis does some DeFi. I think Galaxy does do some DeFi too, actually. Um, but I, I do agree with the, the point. And like, I think more to your original question, Dave, like the, the other thing that Harvey was saying that I think is right is like a lot of the research I've been seeing lately out of the institutional side. And I think this is where it needs to be for this market is a lot less focused on like the new shiny stuff. Right. Um, and that's because of where we're at in the cycle. Like when you're at this point in the cycle, you're not looking for your growth stock, super high multiple name. You're kind of trying to figure out like with my tried and true, like blue chip assets, how do I reevaluate their fundamentals reset on, on my analysis and like go back. I've had multiple conversations in the first week in the, in the past few weeks with investors on like reassessing first principles of crypto. Right. And like going back to that level of granularity of like, why am I here? What am I looking for? And then what tokens actually fulfill these, these principles? Yeah. Do you think that's because they're like, oh, damn it. Why didn't we sell? Right. So that's kind of make them question why are um, we still holding and what should we buy? No, if I, the I cycle think it's, okay. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, that's definitely part of it for sure. But I think it's more of like an angle of, of not why didn't we sell, but the fact that we didn't sell must mean that at some point we like lost track of the fundamentals that we said we were operating on, right? And so reassessing the, the things that brought you to that point and ensuring that you have a, a systematic, like almost algorithmic way that you're assessing your risk. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you're assessing your risk going forward um, and and thinking about like your exposure, I think, is really important. And um, that could, this kind of speaks to another thing I, I think we'll see a lot more of next cycle is thinking about like factor risk and a lot of the stuff that people are doing systematically in equities. Uh, I'm just now hearing quants like kind of starting to talk about it in crypto and it's really hard to break out factor risk in crypto because everything is so correlated, but you can still do a lot of it. And I think people are going to be thinking a lot more about like cross correlations of their portfolio in terms of hedging risk. And like, ultimately what we saw is we thought all of these big VCs and investors were like using us as exit liquidity, but it turns out they were all just leveraged long too, right? And, <laughs> They're just um, like me for real. Yeah. They just like me for real. Exactly. And so um, I think that once we see a lot of traditional institutions like regulation passes, let's just take that as a given. Um, some of these people start to enter the space and have traditional risk management platforms. I think, you know, people like Archegos aside, the big multi-managers, quant models like 0.72s, BlackRock, whoever it is, Jane Streets, like have really, really tactical and thorough risk management. And so um, stuff like that should help with some of the, like the cross correlational stuff that we've been seeing in the past too. Yeah. So, uh, Harvey, you said, you know, before in your answer that you you see institutions just getting to see rounds a lot more instead of buying liquid tokens. So I guess the question for both of you is, do you think there's a big opportunity with liquid tokens out there that have kind of proven themselves over the past cycle or two cycles, um, especially coming in, you know, through this like next stage of, 
the crypto markets and into later the next bull market whenever that happens. Absolutely. Especially so you see a lot of battle tested protocols like you've got like the the lending giants like Aave Compound. You got Uniswap still floating around. There are a bunch of teams that are still here and synthetics. Like, <laughs> Definitely synthetics. Synthetic. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're still here and they're actually hitting some of those zero to one advancements. I think um, there's definitely a lot of opportunity in the liquid token markets right now that a lot of people who are watching their tokens vest to zero dollars are really regretting that they can't buy these right now. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. And <laughs> something I have been, I have all like these random little theories I'm always working on at any given point in time. And one of my current theories is that We've seen huge amounts of capital that has been earmarked to be deployed uh, into crypto markets through VCs and, and privates. And at some point, um, those tokens are going to become liquid and those funds will have two options. Either they OTC all the tokens immediately upon vesting and like still maintain only having a private vehicle or B, they shift into having a liquid token vehicle. And if that is the avenue for like, I don't know how much you guys have seen, but I've seen probably close to like the current market cap of crypto at this point in the cycle earmarked to be deployed into crypto over the next like few years from like major funds. Right. And if you see them entering liquid crypto markets because they need a, a vehicle to hold their new tokens, um, that could be a potential positive catalyst for them to enter existing liquid markets. And that's been like something I've been tossing around to people to yeah. see what they feel about it. I don't think there's enough seed rounds to go around for all this capital that's earmarked that's supposed to be deployed by all these funds. I mean, the yeah. past first half of 2022 is like 100 million raised, 500 million, a billion, yeah. 4 billion. Like, where's all that money going to go? <laughs> exactly, right? Like we're yeah. looking at a, a trillion dollar market cap right now, you know? Um, yeah. It's a significant sum against the total of what we're seeing right now. And I think that's a very underrated catalyst. Yeah, and definitely with a lot of these bigger firms, They've, they've done some private rounds and they've watched the value of their vested tokens cut in half, go to zero. Like you have people who hopped in, like, I think like a near DeFi round and they got it at like 50% off of like a moving average. So like, I think it was like Jane street in particular, they like, they got in at like nine fifty on near. And now they're locked in that and they're watching that vest and it's like, oh shit. So like hey. I think a lot of people learn their lessons and will actually just play with liquid tokens from here on out. Yeah, for sure. Especially as the market matures and, you know, I mean, there's a lot less liquidity than there was at like the top of the bowl, but there's still like a significant and a lot more liquidity out there to do trades, especially on chain because last cycle in 2018, 2019, it was a fucking drought. It was so desolate. Oh my God. It was so depressing. But so like when I see like it's a downturn now, but I still see all the liquidity that's available, even for all the out there altcoins. I was like, oh, we've definitely made a ton of progress since last cycle. Uh, Jack, I have a question for you. So you just, you said to yourself, you always are creating these random theories. So I want to know what is your most out there, random esoteric theory you have in crypto? Oh, dude, you're going to put me on the spot like this? Yeah, I am. I, yes, I am. Um, I don't know. I feel like the the biggest one I've been sitting on lately is 
as you know, is like, I've just been hyper focused on like, where is the, the real yield, you know, like real in the sense of where are people paying for yield regardless? Like at the end of the day, when everything dries up, like what are the wells that are still going to exist and how do I start building my exposure to them now? Right. Um, and so within that, there's kind of two major forces that I've seen, uh, that I love talking about. The first is, and I've talked about this one a little bit already, is dollar-denominated yields um, are lower on-chain than they are off-chain, which makes no sense, right? Because theoretically, <laughs> you should be paying a risk premium, and we're just not getting one. So there's zero reason to hold your balance sheet uh, on-chain versus off-chain if you're in the U.S., right? You'd rather just buy 10 years or something. However, outside the U.S., um, you don't necessarily have the option to liquid rates markets from the U.S., right? So you may be subject to buying on-chain rates, so I think there's like a lot of really interesting opportunities for people that can capture on-chain um, on-chain dollars, right? Basically, like people who are willing to loan dollars for four percent, take that outside to you know the current reality where you can loan money for you know ten to thirteen percent for reasonable reasonable chances of success, right? Um, or even like four to six percent on more realistic like. I don't know, mortgage type products or whatever you want exposure to right now. And then arbitrage that difference back. Like that is a legitimate structured product that you can run that will help normalize rates on chain and off chain, because to be competitive with those other dollar rates will have to rise um, in comparison. Right. And so that's one way um, rates can normalize. The other really interesting effect that I've been thinking about is um, when you think about all right, so we have one set of people that we just talked about, which are dollar-denominated investors. What about the people that don't denominate in dollars? What about the people that dominate, denominate in something like ETH? So let's think about the current situation for them, right? So you have like two main things that you can do with your ETH if you want to hold it. You can like um, either stake it or you can lend it or put it in a pool or something like that, right? Where if you look at current LP rates for large pools like um, I think I looked at ETH USDC or something like that. Net of IL, you're earning about 7% on your ETH annualized. If you're lending for perpetual basis trades, you're earning between 15 to 3% annualized. If you're staking, which is a risk-free rate for ETH-denominated investors, you're, post-merge, you're probably earning 6% min right off the bat. And so, like, when I think about people's optionality post-merge, there's kind of one of two things that has to happen. Either other rates are going to have to come up to meet merge staking rate to compensate people effectively for taking on that risk. Um, or B, liquidity is going to dry up as everyone goes to staking. And then my super pot shot theory here is that if that, in fact, happens, what we're instead going to see is pools being denominated in things like Steve. So that way people can stay staked and earn that yield while still using the token to like facilitate liquidity transfer. Well, this is like the Super Bowl Lido case right here. Uh, yeah, I mean, like not even strictly Lido, just like whatever staking derivatives. But the problem with that is then like you need almost like some curve protocol for like flexible um, staked ETH swaps or else like denominating I mean, things in different uh, staked ETH assets gets really annoying. Yeah, I mean, Frax is also working on their own ETH stake derivative as well. Yeah. Which, which is quite forward-thinking by Sam and the team. But here's the problem. Here's the problem, right? Okay. And, and here's the problem with this theory is that 
liquidity pools like to be paired against the same base asset, right? Like we like to use USDC, Frax, DAI, whatever, um, because that way you can easily swap assets against each other. But that also encourages concentration and centralization of pairs into specific assets, which isn't like functionally necessarily an issue until it creates centralization risk for Ethereum as a whole, right? Because if Steeth begin, begins to become the popular base pair in LP swaps, that encourages people to use Steeth as their staking vector. And like, let's say that Steeth hypothet hypothetically gets to a point where 66% of all ETH is staked, or of all staked ETH is in is in Lido, they theoretically kind of like control the Ethereum blockchain in a proof of stake model, <laughs> yeah. right? And that's like really fucking problematic. So dealing with that in a flexible way for liquidity pools, I think is going to be a super cool solution that I'm excited to see built out. Yeah, I think that's something they've been debating internally within Lido. To be, I'm not in their governance forums. No, I've seen them talking. It's like because yeah. Vitalik actually tweeted about it as like, hey, I, this is something that's like kind of concerning. Do you guys see kind of like this like a staking derivative, like alliance or triumphative. Of, I don't even know how to say it. Like, it's like, okay, like you can get like 20%, you can get 30%, I'll get 10% and, or like you, and that other person gets 40%. You kind of see like that forming uh, at all. And do you see a like, kind of like curved meta pool of derivative ETH assets coming into being? Yeah, I, I, I feel like. Opinion. RV, you I don't take know. this one. Uh, I'm just drifting. Oh, yeah, go ahead. If you had like, um, multiple staked ETH derivatives, then theoretically the incentives should balance out when one's too saturated, people will swap to the one that has the higher return. But um, yeah, I, I see the case for like a curve metapool for that. I think that's super interesting. Is there a metapool yet for ETH or no? Is there? No. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, theoretically, the staking rate should be consistent across all liquid staking options, though, right? Because it's not a function of the number of ETH staked, like, in your protocol, necessarily. It's a function of, like, the total number of ETH staked. Yeah. And so it should balance out. Yeah, it shouldn't even be, like, as long as they're all just passing through and not, like, offering some other weird, like, UST APR scheme to encourage staking through their validators or whatever, like... It should be a situation where they're all offering like very, very similar rates. Oh God! If that happens next cycle, run. I'm just gonna. Run. I think it is gonna. I'm letting <laughs> this you know. This is gonna happen next cycle. Want another gonna... pot shot theory? Like I'm calling that for next cycle. I've called a lot of random stuff today, so we'll see what percentage works out. Yeah. Probably like ten. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Harvey, do you have any in. out? Harvey, you have any like out there theories? Not off Shit. the top of my head. I'm just trying to stay alive. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, me and you both. What about Not you, Kit? Um, me, I, I really like what Jack has said with, you know, Steph being the base denominated pair across all of uh, Ethereum. But I feel like I'm using Steph as an example, but like some liquid derivative. And the problem with Steph is it's not, it's based on the capacity of the people running the nodes, right? Just because you minted Steph, that doesn't mean a node validator was able to like instantaneously just launch a node for you and your ETH is put to work. So so there is a dilutive effect on, on the Steph side. It's, it's based on how fast a node operator uh, can, well, put up a node. So I, I think, you know, that's what would make it more attractive to go to like a rocket pool or some of these other providers because you might be able to put your ETH to work sooner. Um, 
And yeah. I, I think for Lido also, there was a governance proposal to self-limit. And I think that did not pass. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> the token holders do not want that. And I feel it is scary to have, you know, the free market reign in this situation because the free market always kind of lean, lends itself to the uh, concentration of power. Um, I guess I don't know. can like yeah. can big staking organizations and node running organizations, whether it be Block Damon or Figment, I guess they can in a sense like act as like as a check and like other parties like yeah they're actually like their own centralized corporations, but in a sense they can if there's equal distribution throughout, you're gonna have to have like these different parties like have their say. It's kind of like a parliament system in a government, like that will essentially have to form in order for the system to become sustainable. Mm-hmm. Then what was this all for? What was the point of all yeah. of this if we're just going yeah. back to the way it was? I mean, <laughs> history just doesn't repeat it rhymes. Yeah. Um, but it's, all right, it's guys, just a constant dance of like centralization to decentralization to aggregation to separate. It's literally just like in, breathe in, out, breathe in, out. Yeah. I don't just, yeah. Bundling anyway. and unbundling. Uh, but yeah, so this, normally for these pods, like, we always like to end with a uh, round of lightning questions. So it's going to be a quick burst and you just give your answers the moment it comes to you. All right. So let's, let's start here with uh, Harvey. Um, so my first question is, what was your first virgin crypto experience? When did you first touch the chain? Oh, when did I first touch the chain? Shit. Well, my first virgin crypto experience was buying stupid ass V chain at the top. But when I first touched the chain, it, did you it was buy probably- it at the Pornhub uh, promotion? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, oh, no. you can accept it. First time touching the chain, uh, I think I, I hopped in on the Claros pre sale. I saw it on like 4chan biz. And uh, so I bought the, the Claros token, wrote that for like a 3X. And funny enough, the Claros court actually banned me from Proof of Humanity, where I was earning UBI. They thought I was a bot, so came full circle. Rugged. Wow. Okay. And then, um, what do you like to do off chain? Off chain, currently nothing. I used to love hopping in the KuCoin casino or the KuCoin <laughs> casino. But nothing now. Wow, that's a true, true DGen. Okay, yeah. right. only things right, in terms of crypto. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like my life is on the chain. All right, Jack. Yeah. Um, what What was your virgin crypto experience? When did you touch the chain? Um, yeah, so my first crypto experience, I guess, would have been mining Bitcoin way back when. But the first time I touched the chain uh, would have probably been, I guess, like I set up my MetaMask and everything for the Olympus drop. So whenever that was, was when I got off of the centralized exchange and onto the no, chain. That was in March of 2021. Yeah. 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 And before that, I was just like messing around on centralized exchanges. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that was my, my first one for sure. Nice. Okay. I'm glad you went all the way with Ohm. Nice. Yeah, man. Um, and then what do you do off chain? Um, are you talking about like in real life? Hobbies, interests. Like, yeah, uh, in real life. Cool, cool, cool. Um, I do a wide variety of stuff. My big hobby during COVID was I was building mechanical keyboards. Uh, in my former life, I was a competitive swimmer, so I still like lifting a bit now. Um, play league, TFT, not league, um, because Ooh. I'm a retired league. That I hit plat one yesterday. I'm gonna make diamonds. Oh, um, hell yeah, yeah, and 
and yeah, honestly, it's just like enjoy being outside. And I live in New York, so it's uh, it's a great city with a lot of things to do. You enjoy touching grass. I do enjoy. T- I'm a big. I'm a big. I went to college way out in the middle of nowhere, so I do like to touch grass from time to time. Guys, thank you for coming on. Uh, to end this, uh, can you both give where people can find you on social media? Harvey, you can go first, and then Jack. Yeah, so I'm Harvey Milk on Twitter. I didn't realize that was a politician back in the day, uh, but uh, on Twitter, I'm at I'm narrating, and uh, you can just follow me on there. It's a lot of shit posts. Lit. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, at Yoni J Mel on Twitter. Uh, it might be hard to spell. It might be in my name. I'm not sure if you can see it or here or not. Yeah, we'll, we'll have it in here. All right, yeah, Dave, Dave will throw it in there for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah there you go. So um, feel free to hit me up. I also ship post pretty frequently. I'd say I have a better ratio than a lot of alpha accounts, though. Like I'm probably like 10% alpha to 90% ship posting versus like even worse than that. So thanks, guys, for coming on. This was a good one. And we'll see you on chain. Wow, Dave. That was such a great episode. I, I love talking to fellow researchers. What was your yeah, takeaway? That the researchers know their shit um, and that there's so many different moving parts within DeFi, but um, especially at an institutional level. And people are always ask like, oh, like the institutions are coming or the institutions here, this and that. It's pretty obvious that the institutions are here, but they have to abide by certain rules and obligations um, to make certain moves. Like they can't just like go in and ape on Uniswap, like that you're a typical retail. Um, but that, I think stuff like that will come in the future. And it, you know, I think just hearing from the institutional perspective was really nice and gives a sense of where the market could go in the coming months and years. What do you think? I agree. I agree. I think, you know, Jack and Harvey gave us a really good dose of what institutions need in order to really dive, you know, both feet and head first into, you know, the crypto pool. And we definitely lack that refinement. So I'm glad we kind of surfaced that today in this pod. And I really enjoyed how, and I really liked actually how they gave not just fracks, but all DeFi in general tips on how they could improve their communication because communication is something definitely lacking uh, within protocols like protocol research is. I mean, protocol relations, it's definitely something necessary. And those protocols that can communicate will have the advantage and leg up in the future. Agreed, man. Well, I hope the uh, the audience got as much out of this as we did. But please remember to like and subscribe us on YouTube at Flywheel Pod and on Twitter and Telegram at Flywheel Pod. And you can find Dave at DeFiDave22. You can find me at 0x capital underscore K. All right. See you guys next episode. Peace. Ciao.